Hello. Hi, John. Hi, Merlin. How's it going? Good. How are you going? I'm going. I'm going, man. Big weekend. Merlin, man. Oh, John Roderick. Oh, a patriotic version. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it was a big weekend. A big, nice, big, long, hot weekend. Oh, is it hot up there right now? Uh, it's very hot up here. Yeah, Can you guys just a, set some kind of record for most days above eighty. Yeah, we're we're headed we're headed to a record of most days above ninety now. That's that, that's where we that's what that's our target. Uh, yeah, it hasn't rained in in a long, long time, and it's uh, everybody. You know, the 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 sociopaths love it, of course, because <laughs> because they're 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 lizard people, and they they lay out on their hot rocks. <laughs> Yeah, you get to they get to live this little fantasy of pretending they live somewhere else. <laughs> I live somewhere different with sun. Yeah. Yeah, they just they absorb the life-giving rays of the sun and the rest of us are just uh cowering. Something I have uh, has done on me slowly. I think I may have picked up slightly from you is that um when you think about the the problems that different places have um you know, whether that's, you know, when it rains in Atlanta, it rains in San Francisco, when it snows, you know, someplace where it doesn't snow. And everybody laughs, they point and laugh. But, you know, the problem is that, you know, you have your community set up a certain way, your city, if you like, uh, to accommodate what happens over 80% of the time. Mm-hmm. Right? And I don't know, I feel like uh, I have a more subtle understanding of these things because I get, now I get that. Mm-hmm. That, you know, yeah, it is still kind of silly that, that literally no one in Florida can drive. But, but you know, if, you, if you're not used to a certain kind of traffic and an event happens, it's a very infrastructural issue in some ways. You can't suddenly ramp up to everybody having air conditioning because it's hot for four days. That's right. And no one here has air conditioning. It's always been a point of personal pride for Seattleites. No air conditioning, no umbrellas. Those are our two big, you know, system-wide decisions. Wow. That everyone makes. No umbrellas, no air conditioning. And, um, and now the no air conditioning thing is kind of starting to be a little bit of a problem for people. You can't, go, you can't go two weeks with no break in the sun in July and, and, be, and just sit in front of your box fan and be like, yeah, I'm fine. I'm fine. I don't need an umbrella either. Well, yeah, I mean, there's there's health issues. I mean, it seems like if I feel like this happens in Chicago a lot when there's heat waves, you know, ramifications for people like, you know, old people who live alone and <clears throat> don't have air conditioning or something like that. There's there's real there's stakes to it. You know, you know what? You just hit on it, Merlin. Hmm. It's ramifications. Hmm. That's what we're talking about. Are you really? Is that, <laughs> it's all about ramifications. You know what? It's ramifications. And this is a thing that people don't people don't get we don't talk about ramifications enough i'm gonna write that down but uh but this is about ramifications <laughs> and so many things are you know what i mean so many things are about ramifications that's a really good point john yeah because i Thank think you. i think as principal people mm. with a lot of fancy ideas we have a lot of nouns in our head about how the world works but when mm. it comes down to it the real problem it's ramifications yes that's right yeah yeah at the end you of know, the day the, the more the more you say it the more it really resonates with me ramifications it's ramifications and you know it's starting to really sink in with me too mm-hmm, mm-hmm. say it just mm. say it a few times 
And so say really, it's often, it's almost like praying. <laughs> you really start to, you really start to see the ramifications of it. Yeah, you know it's true. Mm. It's true because uh, you know the thing is, I don't know. I think a lot about these things. You yeah, know, I know as, you as, do. As, one, as one does. <laughs> <laughs> Where you know, actually, I mentioned this recently somewhere else. I think about like uh, I've talked about this with you about like with like even with parenting style or like any of the ways you conduct your life. I used to think that I had a set of principles or values, Mm -hmm. or any of these other lists of nouns that white men like to talk about. Mm -hmm. I used to think that I had these things, and then I willfully, mindfully, and in a very muscular and masculine way, applied those to life. Mm -hmm. And I've started to realize that that list is easy to overlook when things are going the way that I want. It's when things don't go the way that I want, right? That's when I start wanting to start grabbing my big bag of nouns and slapping it onto things and going, that's why this is wrong. When really I have to realize it's ramifications. It's ramifications. Do you know what I mean, though? I do. People, you know, it's just, it's always the kind of like, I don't know, I guess form of uh, personal NIMBY, where you're always pointing at other people who are doing it wrong. Uh, one does that. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you, you just assume you're doing it right because you got this bag of nouns. Yeah, I have more than ever before am, no, am convinced that I am... Uh, I do not have special knowledge, and I am not doing it right. (laughs) You really feel that when, I mean, if you have time to sit and think and stew and steam and various other ways of mentally cooking yourself, Mm -hmm. you you can really dig yourself in on how correct your idea about something is. Mm -hmm. And then you might suddenly, one might suddenly be exposed to several dozen people who not only disagree with how you steamed and stewed, but like you can, they can actively demonstrably show you how full of shit you are in a Mm. way that is incredibly humbling. Mm. Well, there are two things in my immediate life here where I feel like I do have some special knowledge right now. Okay. One of them, and this may be a foreign world to you. I'll write it down. But uh, when I was first introduced to Facebook, the first thing, that I felt about it was that it was a terrible name, Facebook. I don't, you know, a lot of people don't like the word moist. Ugh. I don't like the word face. Succulent. There's nothing about the word face that I like. Mm. And face. Do you remember? Do you remember in on on Golden Pond mm. when they described kissing as sucking face? Ugh. Do you remember that? Ugh. Ugh. Okay. I, yeah. I, okay. I, you add you add suck to face, and it ugh. really brings out the nastiness of face. As a teenager. Old people, young, old people suck in face. Well, see, it wasn't the. It was the. It was the. You know, the one of the. Um, one of the plot points of On Golden Pond was what Jane Fonda's son, her obnoxious little blonde son, or was he? Yeah, there, there was a young person in that film. I haven't seen it in a long time, but <laughs> I do remember. I do remember the term "sucking face" ruined not only the movie for me, but but I think that entire year of my life. Mm-hmm. And then, so when Facebook first came out, I was like, "Uh, it's just like sucking face. It's face, Facebook. I don't want, you know, like a rock face. I like the face oh, of a, yeah. you know, a rock face. I can get that's, into. That's more dignified. But a human face yeah. or even a little animal face. Oh, oh but in any God. case, I went into this having no problem with face. <laughs> yeah. Face. It's ramifications. Now I'm thinking about face. Well, so yeah. And that's the thing. Like. You're thinking about face. You 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 took out. You you you're not even using like it's just face now, right? I mean, you're just saying, it's like it's like the way they talk about police in The Wire. 
You don't even say the police anymore. You just say, oh, like right. it doesn't have an article. You just say face. Just say police. Right. And so Facebook, anyway, when it first came on, I was, I, you know, I had spent so much time worrying about who I was friending on MySpace uh-huh. that when Facebook came, I was just like, screw it. I'm just going to friend everybody. Everybody that wants to be my friend can be my friend because I don't care. I'm not here to <laughs> curate anything. I'm not trying to create a special place for my people. My people aren't on here at all. So the people that are on my Facebook page are just whoever. And so a long time ago or some amount of time ago, I arrived at the 5,000 friend mark, which is the most you can have. Oh, there's a limit? You can only have 5,000 friends because somewhere in, within Facebook, they imagine themselves, they, they imagine their product has a correct use. Absolutely. That's super interesting. They do. That's why they're so tied to the whole real name thing. Yeah. Because they're saying, if this is real John Ronick, there's no way an actual person has actual 5,000 friends, setting aside the fact that you can go and like Coca-Cola on Facebook. Right. That's exactly right. So they have an idea about the correct way to use their product. And 5,000 friends, they determine, is the most that a normal human being could have. It's obviously way more than, than a normal human being could have. But still, not as many as... I mean, if you want to be my friend past 5,000, then you're my fan, right? Mm. But over the years, I have accepted a lot of friend requests from, like, as I say, from whoever. So... Record labels have friended me and a guy that owns a Pontiac dealership. And, you know, there's a lot of stuff on there that I don't care about. Not my people. Did you say Pontiac dealership? Pontiac dealership. <laughs> but so I was like, oh, this is, you know, this is a bummer because people keep friending me every, every day. And I can't, I cannot conclude the transaction with you're, them. You're I, all out of the Bitcoin of human kindness. That's right. I cannot hand them my, like my ace of spades and say, you know, first airborne was here. Right. I cannot touch them with my, my virtual fingertip. You, you can't, you can't palm them your challenge coin. I cannot show them my face and oh. take their face into my collection of faces, into my book of faces, if you will. And so, and yet here's what I've discovered. Are you ready? Yeah. Every day, some one to four people uh, uh, disappear from my Facebook friend list. Every day I am allotted between two to two and five new opportunities to friend people or to accept friend requests. And I don't know where the three to five people, two to five people a day go. They just decide I've had enough or they're monitor. They're, they are, uh, they're in, their own Facebooks really managing their account and they decide, you know, John Roderick, he's just not, I don't know. He's just not working for me anymore, whatever it is. But so every day I get the gratifying feeling of just the, and I, and I always go to the, I always go to the top of the line. I always go to the head of the queue and I let two to five people, two to five more people in. And, and, and it, <laughs> like you, and it, you, un, you uh, unclasp the velvet rope. That's right. And I say, draw it know, aside. I, please, please bring your face to my book. Yeah. And and so uh, today it was uh, it was Jen Lewis, and it was 
Who is this person? Um, is that is that the Rilo Kiley person? I, no, I think we were already friends. Uh. Uh, and then this next person has a uh, has an avatar that is a it's a furry. It's a it's a furry raccoon. It's a furry face friend. A furry friend. So uh, so that's exciting. So that's one thing. Number I've, one, bad name, five thousand friend limit. Five thousand friend limit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they have a sense of they have a sense of what's of, of justice here. And then the other thing, the other thing I know I'm doing right is I was walking along, and I saw an orange handle on the ground. And a, what kind of handle, you might ask? Hmm. It's like a broom handle, but it's only about 16, 18 inches long. Let's say 18, well, let's say uh, not quite two feet. Sort of like the cap on a push broom? That's, it, it, it is, it's a push broom-like handle. It, has, it is threaded on one end, and it's meant, I think, to go into a squeegee. Mm-hmm. Right? It's like a window washer tool. Mm-hmm. It's unused. It's not like, well, no, no, it's been used. It's bright orange. And I saw it on the ground and it, it appealed to me. I picked it up and I've been carrying it around. And, it, you know, it's exactly the right heft that you can kind of spin it between your fingers. You know, it's like, it's big. It's a stick, right? You could, you could whack somebody with it. But it also, you can twirl it in your hand. That's a very satisfying uh, circumference. Mm-hmm. And it and it's you know it's got broom handle weight, and I can you know as I I was sitting here right before you called and I was just kind of here I'll give you a little sound effect. I was just whacking my leg with it. Interesting. So it it stands in for it's it's not a walking stick. It's not nope. a riding crop. It's nope. not a baton. It's certainly not a baseball bat. It's it's uh it's not one of those giant sticks you use to hit your tire, but you're actually using it to to to, to beat up people at truck stops. But this fits into it. It's a nice place in your life. You saw it, you were attracted to it, and you just knew that it would have the hand weight and feel that you were looking for. Exactly, it does all of the things. It it it, it scratches the itch of every single one of those things that you just described: the tire thumper, the uh, riding crop, the walking stick, the um, what was oh a baton. Right, uh, uh, like I, mean, a, I mean, you could extend it to lots of things, like sort of like a, a scepter, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, a and, wand, uh, and the and the orange color. I think if it had been blue, maybe I would have left it on the ground. But the orange color was very uh, intriguing to me, and so now I have a thing. Right, I have I have found at least for the uh, in this context, I have found a small duck. It is this stick, <laughs> and it's giving me like, it's it's, you know, it's giving my fingers something to do. It's just dangerous enough that I'm almost certain to whack myself with it, like wrongly at uh-huh, some point, uh-huh. which gives which gives my you know my possession of it a little bit of an edge. It, it, it provides you with a certain amount of uh, alertness. That's right. That's exactly right. It's keeping me in the game, keeping my head in the game. So I feel like in that respect, I have sort of aced it today. It's very close in color, but different in color uh, to my bell. Hmm. Uh, so I've got kind of an orange theme. I don't know. I just feel like that, this little guy, oh, the other thing I did was I put my water bottle in the in the refrigerator last night, and now my water bottle is, I, was, I got tired of drinking hot water. Mm. So there are a few things I know. I'm not going to kid around here and say that, I'm, that I don't know anything. Mm-mm. I do know a few things. Those small victories can be very important. 
I really, I really, I really believe that. I think, I think you start out every day on the bubble, maybe at best. And I think, uh, you know, sometimes uh, something comes along and you just say, hey, this is the direction you need to go. What does that phrase mean, on the bubble? I think it has to do, I think of it as being like a, uh, a, like a level, a carpenter's level. Mm-hmm. Where, oh, when, yeah. where when, when, it's, when it's, you know, across something that, that is exactly horizontal, the, the little bubble in the green liquid is exactly in the right place. You're on the bubble. I don't know. I don't know. I, that's what I would think of anyway. But, you know, just meaning that it could, it could go either way. Yeah. I, I, boy, I wonder. I, I, I think sometimes what, well, you know, a lot, of, a lot of our podcast, yours and mine, one of the major themes has been, what are we doing? What are we meant to do? Uh. And what are we actually doing? And, um, and, I feel like I feel like I'm just trying to get on the bubble. I'm just trying to get get that bubble somewhere. Hmm. I, I I went hiking yesterday with my family. We hiked up to a mountain lake, and uh, we were some of the only people there. There was a there was some kind of dead critter. It was truly mountainous, and um, and the ladies in my party all jumped in this freezing mountain lake. And I kind of took my shoes off and waded into my knees, which was that was the that was right where I was comfortable. It was very it was cold mountain lake, and I was you know I was I was being watchful. I was I didn't want to jump in the lake. I wanted to kind of keep one not a foot on the shore, but I wanted to be ready to you know you don't know what's going to happen up there in a mountain lake. We heard coyotes, and um, you know, and I was there, and I was like, okay, am I is this this was this was absolutely where I was meant to be right now, right? This is I am exactly where I need to be right now, um, and and if you can get if you can I feel like if you can even get that once a day, like this is exactly where I where I am meant to be right now. Mm-hmm. Like you're you are you're triumphing a little bit at least. Oh, totally. Oh no, I I hundred percent agree. Yeah. When was the last time that you felt like that you were exactly where you were meant to be? Well, this is going to be a false positive because I rarely get it <laughs> because I'm broken inside and now I can't stop thinking about the motherfucking Kool Aid Man coming through my wall all the time. <laughs> oh yeah. Because there's, some, <laughs> there's something about the and the analogy of the anxiety Kool Aid Man that has now kind of taken over as a controlling metaphor oh. for my for my mental landscape. <laughs> I'm sorry. I <laughs> know. Uh, I mean, you know, it's uh, it, this happens rare enough that I do, rarely enough that I really notice it. Uh, we, uh, as I mentioned, I think uh, offline, we, we went away for the weekend to visit uh, family. Uh, so the family, you know, our in-laws that we visit pretty often, they've recently moved like much further away than where they were before. They're out like east of Sacramento now. And it's oh, in an area that I would almost describe as like the suburban country. Like I, I, I don't know a lot about California, but there are these areas where not much happens for a while. And then you get into this this area that's like a weird combination 
of like gated communities, but also like fairly wild. I think it's the kind of places that tend to go up like Tinder during a wildfire. <laughs> like you're out in the middle of, you know, like they have a creek behind their house and with oh. crawdads in it. And we go and we draw the crawdads and it's really fun. Uh, and whoa, I have, whoa, whoa, whoa. You draw the crawdads? My, uh, my, my daughter's kind of a, what's less than amateur, a terrible uh, naturalist. Uh-huh. She likes uh, looking at things and holding them and collecting the golf balls that people have hit into the creek. Uh-huh. Where so many golf balls and uh, you know part of nature and uh, they got crawdads which is kind of cool. So but, uh, but like tiny lobsters. When you said draw the crawdads, I thought that that was a southern uh, way of <laughs> describing catching them. But you're literally drawing them with pen and paper, Ske- sketching them. Sketching. Draw- drawing the crawdads sounds like a terrible guy to buy <laughs> oh, voices record. Oh, we were out there drawing the crawdads and. <laughs> Well, I, drew, I drew up 45 of them. I sketched a mud flap, found so they, me a butt skipper. Mud flap. Mud flap. So are th- <laughs> now, that's a gross word. That goes on the list with face, mud flap. <laughs> the word flap is so gross. Well, I, 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 don't, I, I, I may not have ever told you the story, but I was sitting, uh, I was sitting on the side of the road uh, one time with, a, with an, an older guy and uh, – we're just sort of shooting the shit. I was there with a friend, and he was there with a friend. The older guy was there with a friend. And uh, a really nice Cadillac drove by, and the old man said, uh, that's a nice car. And I said, that's eh, not really my style. I like, a, I like it a little bit grittier than, you know, that's all, that's all dandied up. And he said, oh, you're one of them mud ducks. <laughs> mud ducks. And uh, that sounds like a that sounds like a sexy thing, a mud duck. And then my friend seized upon it and uh, still to this day calls me mud duck. Oh, gee. See, that's how it starts. Just like snot boogie. Anyway, so you're out there in Grass Valley, California. Yep. Grass Valley, Greg. We're we're way the heck out in the middle of the nowhere. And believe me, I have so many things to tell you about this weekend. But Um, but, you know, um, in retrospect, there was just this is really dumb and personal. But um, my daughter loves going to the family's new house. They have a, a hammock in the backyard. And uh, we were just laying there, kind of perpendicular in the hammock, kind of just cuddling and uh, being silly. Daddy-daughter time. Yeah, but I mean, you know, it isn't like, I think, you know, we need to disabuse ourselves of the of the like weird, I don't know, Norman Rockwell 50s idea about how families actually spend time together, a lot of it's excruciating. It is actually extremely rare to have the moments that are depicted in things like Coca-Cola commercials. Mm-hmm. And, and, but when it does happen and you're not trying to create a Coca-Cola moment, it's actually really nice. So we were just laying there and we just, there's a thing we do where we uh, take a sound and then we try to figure out all the words that you could go through the alphabet and how many words you can make out of that sound and yeah, maybe that a becomes one. a song. And uh, we were just sitting there, and I was like, you know, this is this is actually uh, really nice. And then she went inside to play on the iPad, but it was nice. Um, and uh, but I find those moments very rare, maybe partly because of the Kool Aid Man. Mm-hmm. But uh, but it does it does happen, it does happen. But then, see, now I had numerous uh, things because I, I you know numerous times with the family where I felt like I was not participating as much as I should. Like in your case, you go in up to your up to your you know calves. I finally at length put on my swimsuit and got in the pool with everybody. But I don't love that, you know. John, everybody's got tattoos now. Oh yes, There's, they do. I see. I this is the thing. I live in a bubble, and then I go out to, to the to the suburban uh, country land, and like I'm, I'm mean like like there's there's not a clean ankle in that county. <laughs> there's some kind of some kind of shitty insignia affixed to to every leg. Where they live, 
and boy, and people buy clothes to show it off, and like you know, God love you. I'm glad you're having the life you want, but it's, it makes me incredibly uncomfortable. Yeah, a- and uh, I, oh, God. I mean, everybody, you know, and I think sometimes like moms and dads get sympathy with tattoos. Because their kids have already gotten in way over their head in their in the in the tattoos oh. in their twenties, and I think they get like a sympathy tattoo. Maybe you get a m- memorial tattoo. You get a Tweety Bird. You get some kind of like a a, a really poorly drawn trouble clef. Uh-huh. Uh, I've seen uh-huh. I've seen so many insignias. Oh oh my goodness! But no, I'm not always participating as much as I should. You know, I go through my moods. But, you yeah. Know. Oh, yeah. Oh, I know. I yeah. know. No, I'm, I'm. I'm pretty. I'm, I'm usually a pretty jolly guy. But you know, sometimes it's just like, uh, <laughs> hey, Kool Aid. <laughs> hey, Kool Aid. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> Crash a bang a boomer with a big bread. You're smile. never gonna retire. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. I had that conversation yesterday. Oh God, please no. Please. No. <laughs> Where I trigger was like, warning. Come on. I said, listen. The only real wealth is property. I heard that word. I heard those words come out of my mouth. The only real wealth is property. <laughs> hmm. And uh, the people I was, uh, was talking to were <laughs> all like, like <laughs> "You sound like James Earl Jones and Conan." <laughs> yeah. but, what is you know, good? <laughs> uh, one person kind of looked out the window. The other person started twirling their hair, and I was like, "No, listen." <laughs> was it? Was it? Was it a non sequitur? <laughs> were you sitting there a little bit, a like, little pu- bit, puffing on your on your uh, on your. Uh, your your meerschaum or your your calabash and, and you go. The only real wealth is property. I think I looked. I think I looked up from a newspaper. I looked over the. <laughs> Were top you of scratching yourself at the same time? <laughs> only real wealth. That's you know what. Here's something I want my daughter to know. Gather around. The only real wealth is property. Only real wealth. That's true. Uh yeah, never going to retire. Oh Jesus. And um, and can only get can only be comfortable with other people for in brief. Uh, brief moments. I used to think we were really different. Mm. Oh, you and me, or 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 us uh, and the world. Well, I knew <laughs> you and I were corner cases, but like I I I used to think of us as being very very uh, different, and now I think we might share a Kool Aid Man. Mm. Kool Aid Man as a service. One one of one of my quotes from yesterday. You know, we were <clears throat> we were hiking. It was a it was a truly a mountain mountain hike, and. Um, my little girl has gone on some. She's been gone on some forced marches with us before, and <laughs> and the, uh, you know, and my long term goal, which was to get her to think that hiking in the mountains is normal, um, is starting to take effect. Right? She no longer complains. Uh, she she <laughs> she as- knows better. <laughs> she just she assumes that this is you know that we're going to do. And it was quite a long hike. It was it was a few miles up and a few miles down. Oh my goodness, on her little legs? Yeah, up to the up to the mountains. But what I what I started to notice was, you know, she she is a narrator, right? She is narrating all the time. Um and when she's narrating, she'll get up into a word storm and forget where she is, forget what she's doing. But she's on a mountain trail, so she would then immediately slip and fall. She fell one at one point uh yesterday face first in a stream like, oh no she didn't know she was just and tripped and plop right like face in a stream <sighs> and that was a surprise that uh it was really actually quite priceless oh no uh, but she, she wasn't horribly injured uh no i, I mean she was i mean we, we were hiking in the mountains she, we were all injured by the end but at a certain point i i became a dad Right, and I started to say, "Less talking, more walking." Oh, and then I heard myself say it again, and then I was like, "It's my mantra. 
it's my dad mantra for the day. And every time I would say it, she would stop and she would think about it for a while and she would walk and she would walk without falling. And then after a while, you know, we'd, and I, and, and I, and there were a couple of addenda to the rules, right? If you have a question about anything, you can always ask a question. Are you allowed to pause and, and stop walking? You can pause and stop walking and look at stuff. There are a lot of I, things. I could see a lot of it, uh, potential abuse. Uh, right, uh, right. There, there's a certain amount of that, but we, we play a game where it's like, Who's the who's the locomotive? Who is the uh, who's the hopper car? And who's the caboose? Hmm. So if you if you stop and want to like look at something, then you know we'll all stop and look. But if you're if you're lagging, and you're the caboose, you know remember you are four years old, and th- this is a mountain forest, so you don't want to lag too you don't want to lag too far behind, because the coyotes will get you. Mm. Uh, I, uh, we should start a collection of dad quotes. I had, I had one. I, I, I like the description of this as being something you find yourself saying. Yeah. No one wakes up wanting to say, <laughs> say, I, I, say certain things, but one finds oneself saying things that, that you, where it's very, you may sound like your parents, one's own parents, or you may sound like a whole new kind of awful parent. Yeah. I sound, I mean, I never in my life thought I would ever say less talking, more walking. How about this one? Um, well, you're just going to have to cry in the car. <laughs> um which which is which is a version of less talking more walking which is like and then of course I, I screwed up any attempt i might make to take the lessons i've learned from my child's wonderful school to say something like hey you know it's okay to feel sad it's okay yeah. to have emotions oh, yeah. it's okay to cry but you know yeah. what you're just you're gonna, gonna have to cry. Cry in the car. <laughs> <laughs> we don't have time to cry here no listen that's uh I, I I have uh, I've said <laughs> that very. Awful. Th- Why did he say that? Yeah. You know what? Uh, uh, save your feelings. Hold them in. <laughs> when we get into the when we get into our safe bubble, you can let them out. We gotta go. We got we got a three hour drive. Chop chop. <laughs> You're gonna have to grind the car. Listen, grab your bag. Mm. Yeah. So uh, so I have uh, I've been I've been coping pretty well lately by you know you know how you kind of we, we, we uh, this is another thing that you and I talk about a lot and I don't think we've ever put a name to it but I uh, but I, I'm starting to think of it as reverse engineered Buddhism oh that's pretty good right where you're not going into it Buddhistically mm-hmm. but you you arrive at it you arrive at Buddhism by other by another path oh that's good and I'm and I'm finding that I'm finding that <clears throat> in my life um that it's actually very effective, you know, uh to um and sometimes it involves some swears, right? Where I, where I think of actual Buddhism as in, as never involving any swears. Mm, see, that's that's bad marketing. Right? That's that's the thing they don't tell you. This is what those uh, Wall Street uh, fat cats don't want you to know that if you're meditating, it can be one of the most uncomfortable experiences in your entire life. Not just on your legs and your behind, but like you're just supposed to sit there and take it as your mind like goes through everything that's wrong. Oh, so many swears. That's mm-hmm. the thing. So many swears. It's like it's like that argument you and I had so many years ago where I was like Christians shouldn't smoke pot. <laughs> it's the same. It's like Buddhists shouldn't swear, but of course when you're meditating, your mind is full of swears. Mm-hmm. You're, you are so full of swears, and that's, that's how you feel like, oh, I'm not doing this right. Preci- oh, God, you're good, John. Wow, ding. But, in fact, it's all swears, 
cuts. It swears all the way down. How did you? So you know, how did you uh, reverse engineer this? What, what what what's the thing? If I could ask, if you want to say, what's the thing that occurs to you? Go, hmm. Here's a thing I could try. Here's a here's a thought technology I could uh, experiment with. Well, so uh, so running this campaign for public office has been uh, uh, extremely difficult and uh, emotionally difficult and and practically difficult, energetically difficult, and um, and so the difficulty like breeds in me at least like. And I think in I think in most candidates, like I was talking the other day to a very successful local politician, um, who is like sort of everybody everybody admires, and he turned to his wife and said, you know, because I was talking about the, the the trials of the campaign. He turned to his wife and he said, "Remember my first campaign?" And she said, "Oh yeah." And he said, "I had a a total nervous breakdown. Like I I thought I was going to end up in a rubber room." Mm. Wow. And I think that that is true of everyone. That's one of the things that people don't, you know, it's so easy to look at political candidates and think, oh, they're ego driven. It's all for glory. It's all for their, you know, they just like to hear the sound of their own voice. All this kind of stuff that we put on political candidates. And, And there's no way to know, even as a I mean, even as a total political voyeur and tourist, as I feel like I've been my whole life watching candidates and watching the process, there's just no way to know how much, um, you know, how exposed you are, how vulnerable you are, and how much the process of running for office is to just put yourself over and over in front of people who are communicating to you in every way that the best you can do is to be the, the best that you're going to get from them is that they're going to give you a face like they're sucking on a lemon, Ugh. right? Like every day you're just, you wake up in the morning and you're like, I'm going to have to go out and I'm going to meet 600 people today and they're all going to give me a lemon face. And then at the end of the day, <clears throat> maybe I'll remember to eat. So there's not the, you know, the, the idea that anybody would do it for the, the, the idea that it is self aggrandizing or that you, that you do it and it's just like, strokes the whole time right it's so far off and there's so much easier ways to do that oh right i mean if you i mean anyway now just go on facebook and put a bunch of put a bunch of selfies on there and talk about your surgery you're you're already you're already like getting so many more ego strokes than even the president of the united states right i mean it's just like running for office is so hard and and there have been multiple, multiple times where I've just, you know, kind of like my friend, the successful politician, where I don't feel like I'm going to end up in a rubber room, but I, but you get that, you get that very human cornered feeling mm-hmm. where just like everywhere I look, there is something bad about to happen. And it's, and, and none of it is going to register as bad to people outside. Like, you know, I was in a, I was, I marched in the pride parade yeah. and Everybody around me and everybody that saw me and took a picture of me is like, wow, you're, you know, that must have been amazing. You're marching in the pride parade. But from my perspective, like I'm marching as a political candidate in the pride parade. And so the joy that people are expressing 
um, is not directed at me, right? I am tr- I am being a political candidate. I am arriving in a situation where people are expressing joy, and I am trying to grab it. I'm trying to grab. You're, you're some- more like a witness to joy. Yeah, right. Or like I am here is the is the best that you can be. Right. right now, if you if if I had if I had an enormous feathered headdress and was wearing a g-string, I would be like, I am giving back the joy that you are sending. Right, like I I am I am here. I, this parade is an expression of my liberation. You know, there are so many people in that parade that are truly expressing like something real and powerful, and I am saying, I would like to be your elected representative. Oh yeah, like kind of like almost like a form of tourism. And and so and I don't and I think most most candidates are most candidates are either not sensitive. I think I think ultimately to be a successful political candidate, you cannot be sensitive. You can't have spent your whole professional career trying to be emotionally raw, which is what I have done. (laughs) And now you are emotionally raw. You're an adult who is still emotionally raw, which is a rare enough thing in and of itself. And then you're putting yourself into a situation where people are like. Just le- squeezing lemons in your eyes all day. Um, <clears throat> so I think people are marching in this parade, and they are not conscious of the fact that they are, uh, or they or if they are conscious of it, they don't. It's not connected to their emotions that they are kind of carpet bagging. Almost any situation you're in as a candidate, you are carpet bagging, unless it is an event that you have set up yourself for people to come yell at you about streetcars. Um. But but so so I'm arriving at this I'm arriving at this backdoor Buddhism because literally I, it's the only I mean I it's not a, a stratagem I'm employing it is a last resort of how am I going to make it to the end of today and then I find myself like trying to just be present and trying to recognize the you know uh, all these uh, all these notions that i've i've learned or heard mm-hmm. uh, in other ways other different kinds of practice and i'm actually it's the it's the only thing that uh that will get me to the end of the day and that's really um you know that's where you get to the to the kind of the mathematics of the soul Right where you, where you just you find the core principles that are true across all religions, or you find the core principles that are just that are that are the equations mm-hmm. that the that the spirit is written in. Um, because you 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 get to a place where you're just you're you have um, you are in the the particle accelerator of the of the spirit, and it just breaks it down to. To um, those, you know, the ele- the elements, I guess. Hmm. <clears throat> so, it's an element of any port in a storm. Um, well, or you know, it's fu- it, it's funny because you, I mean, there are aspects of what I'm doing where I have never cared so much uh, about a thing I'm doing. Right. I've never, I mean, maybe, maybe making records, you, you, you care so deeply about it. But, but the thing about making a record is you're caring about each aspect of it. It's very hard to care about 
the record while you're making it because what you what you really care about is this base part you're working on right now. Mm-hmm. And if you manage to care deeply about this bass part and that tambourine part and you never you never waltz in the studio and go, "Ah, this tambourine part doesn't matter." Just bang bang bang. But you go in every time and go like, oh, "I got to get this tambourine part right. Like this is going to be the thing that really lifts this tune." And you know, so you're caring very deeply about the parts and but you you're never aware of like I I'm I care about this record. You don't you don't think that if you, if you if you if you're too much uh, I say this from some experience. If you're too much in that position, you're probably not making the record. That's right. It's it's there's something actually and I, it's funny because I heard an interview this morning on Sound Opinions. They were talking to I want to say the band Torres, but this woman Mackenzie something in this band. Is that where I was listening to this? Anyway, at some point recently, I heard an interview with somebody where they were talking about how dealing with um um. I think I'm really mangling this. But somebody talking about how like there's something really comforting about actually being in the studio and recording. And as high pressure as that is, that's a really kind of knowable sort of high pressure mm-hmm. because you you really are at in like deep in the implementation details and doing of things. Mm-hmm. It's like when you're outside of that rare environment. It's the same way I feel about recording the show or being on stage. I find it relaxing to do this. This is this this is not is not the part that I find difficult at all. I love doing this. It's you know, it's everything else that's difficult. And cuz that's when you have to think about like what should you be doing that you're not doing. Right, and you don't have to think. I mean, like you do that to an extent, but like if you're really absorbed in what you're doing in the studio, and you're just thinking about a baseline or a tambourine, like that's that's really freeing. Yeah, and 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 that is the opposite of what it is like, at least for me, in running a campaign, because each individual event in the campaign, like none of them, not uh, very few of them, at least thus far. Um. Are, are moments where it's like, I really have to get this bass part right. You know, each, each one of them, at least for, and I think there are candidates who every, every time they appear in front of the like concerned shoppers of America, <laughs> they want to, you know, they want to give their stump speech a little bit better and tailor it to the concerned shoppers. Uh, but for me, each one of those events is just like, oh, there's nothing I want to do less than go talk to the concerned shoppers of America. And it's not because, I'm not interested in hearing what the concerned shoppers are concerned about. It is that every one of these things is a, is, is a kind of theater and they are not really telling me what they're concerned about. Like there is, there's very little real communication happening. If, if any real communication does happen in these events, it is by accident. And yet, so, so every one of the building block events is kind of, Oh, really hard, much, much harder than than what you get out of it. You know what I mean? Well, like, it's it's almost from what do they call it in sports? Is it like the compulsories? Mm-hmm. And it's or, or like, you know, it's anything where like you or a time trial kind of thing where you have to compete in order to be allowed to compete. Right, right. And it's right? exactly right. And so that in one way, obviously that is very similar to a primary. You're competing before you're allowed to compete. But the other part of it is that and I, I might be over-dramatizing this a little bit, but it seems to me like every event you go to, what you're trying to avoid saying is that it, can't, it sounds like is that these can't all be the most important high-stakes thing in the world or you'd perish. Like, But you also have to take each one of those seriously because while there's not an eternal 
like huge amount of long-term gain from really hitting it out of the park, there are, there are potentially huge ramifications if it goes terribly wrong. Mm-hmm. So it's one of those, there's this, it's like well, the worst kind of existential compressor limiter where like, no matter how great it gets, you're okay, you're good. Now these, these 300 shoppers might consider you, but if you say something wrong or you fart or something like that, like it could go, it, it could be potentially catastrophic because now there's, now there's really some news to report on. Yeah. And every single, you know, every single moment is an opportunity for somebody to stand up and say, when did you stop beating your wife? Right. And you're just like, you know, God, it's happy. You know, like it's always there's every morning waking up and, and looking at the Internet. It's just like, is today the day that the Internet, it, you know, that I mean, there, there, there's one guy in my race that that um, <clears throat> that wants to win badly enough that he is willing to be he's willing to attack me personally so if it gets if it gets too desperate he's more than willing to to go negative yeah he's he's demonstrated it already a couple of times and the the attacks have been sort of ineffective because he's just but he's he really is um he really wants it and what i have learned the way i have learned to survive this is to arrive at a place where and it's it's really funny because as i say i have never cared so much about the overall project i've never cared so much about the about the thing i'm doing but i have also had to learn to say like ultimately i'm fine with any result i'm fine with either result like if i win that is a that is cause for celebration if i do not win that is also um that is also fine or that is also like even a uh it is a it will be a profound lesson and experience and i don't mean personally like i'm not talking about this like what a journey right but like I will I, – I already know so much more than I ever knew and that knowledge is going to be useful to me down the road and, and, I, you know, and I know I want to – I know that helping other people, helping my fellows is one of my core principles and now I know how to do that better. But ultimately if I – if I focus on winning, if that is the goal, then there's, there are so many opportunities every day to do something in order to win that is against my beliefs. Mm-hmm. And so I cannot focus on winning because I see what it does to people. And, and there are hundreds and hundreds of people who want to facilitate you making the wrong choice in order to win right that's the whole consultant game it's just like oh you want to win i'll tell you how to win Mm. you put you know you you uh you unscrew your opponent's brake lines in the middle there's always another devil to appear on your shoulder yeah and so you cannot think about winning 
And if you're not thinking about winning, then you have to arrive at a place where winning doesn't matter, where winning isn't the goal. The goal is something else. And, you know, like the goal is not to keep your personal integrity intact because I already had my personal integrity intact before I started running the race. This wasn't some, this isn't some thing where it's like, I need to find, find my integrity. Like I had it, right? So the, the goal has to be something else. And if it isn't winning, and if it isn't staying honest, no matter what the cost or what the, what the result, you know, that, that is this, that is this, that is this, uh, this arrival in a place of like acceptance where I'm still, I'm still working hard and striving every day to do the best job I can with the, with the constant friend, with the constant companion being the knowledge that I'm not willing to do anything to win. And, you know, you know, by anything, I mean, I'm not, I know, you're not willing to do like, you know, in, in, yeah, I, I understand what you mean. Yeah. And that, that, that's the only thing that gives me comfort, right? I mean, I will be, I will like the anxiety will well up in me to the point where I feel like I, um, I've never felt so bad. It's just a terrible anxiety is a terrible, terrible feeling. Mm-hmm. And it, and, it, and it, it, will, it, it rises up and I feel so, so, so bad. And then I just say, you know, I am not trying to, I'm not trying to win. I'm trying to do something else. And, you know, I'm trying to help. Um, and, and that's, that's getting me down the road. You know, my, I, right. I, I talked to my mom the other day and she said, I was looking for sympathy. First mistake. <laughs> and she said, you've had worse months than this. And I was like, mom, that is not helpful. I need, I need support. She was like, no, that is support. You've had worse months than this. You've survived worse than this. So survive it. Wow. No and quarter. Was, no quarter. <laughs> I was like, she's right. I have had worse months than this. And I have survived them. And that is good advice. And that is a way of, but you know, that's very different than like, you've got to win. Yeah. I, man, I'm, I'm sorry that this is as hard as it is. Uh, the, well, you know, it's, I mean, I know. Oh, you knew going into this. I've you, had worse you, months than this. Yeah. <laughs> Yay. Uh, there's, isn't there also a practical side to this though, where I don't know when you think about being, this is not just a true of a candidate, but true of anybody. Like if you're desperate to have something and it's starting to seem less and less likely that you're going to be able to get it, there's a constant and growing temptation to do or attempt more radical things in order to get that thing. Yeah. And this is what I worry about from my opponents. Right. Well, here, here's what I think about though. Also is that, you know, it's almost like I'm trying to imagine like somebody who thinks they can defend themselves by doing some kind of like Daniel karate kick and mainly just blowing out their pants and landing on their face. It's like you, one might try the most radical thing in the world 
and it just makes things worse. And when you're getting advice from the outside, from people who are like, go do this and go do that, it must be hard to know. I mean, there obviously there, there must be some things that come along where you go, no, I'm never going to do that. There's no way. But there's other kinds of things. Like you've talked about the, the siren song of getting involved in a certain kind of negativity where you respond to what other people have said to show how you would do that differently or whatever, where you basically jump into somebody's at responses <laughs> publicly mm-hmm. to start going in and, and, and wrestling around to show how you're different or to like sort of monetize the schadenfreude of somebody else's bad day. Mm-hmm. which is alluring but like does that actually help is the problem you know and and i think one of the worst and most anxiety producing things is as you feel like you're not getting closer to what it is that you want you consider more and more crazy things in order to get there isn't that isn't that part of the problem and now in your case now you feel like you're somewhat at risk because somebody else might be in that position well <clears throat> yeah but somebody else is really in that position and you know and i can hear the mantra that other people say to themselves, which is, you know, uh, particularly when it gets down to the wire, when they say, you know, when you look back on this, are you going to feel like you did everything that you could have done? Do you want to look back at this and, and feel like you, you didn't pull out all the stops? And what that, I think, for a lot of people means, as you near the finish line, is if there's somebody running abreast of you or running a little bit ahead of you, you trip them. Instead of running your own campaign as well as you can and may the best man win. Or right. may the, you know, yeah, you know, yeah. and, and in, in American politics and politics, I guess, everywhere, there's the, it's this healthy dose of like, here's my platform, here's my campaign, and also did you ever... Did you ever really look at the other guy? Did you ever really notice how, you know, did you ever really notice how his nose is a little crooked? <laughs> like there's there's that that aspect where it's presented as like um a fair comparison. You should look at the two two of us and pick the best one. But, you know, but all this swift boating, all this extra information about right. the other person that isn't true that's They're just throwing handfuls of sand. Yeah. And, you know, and it speaks to, it speaks to the fact that, yeah, here's an interesting insight I had recently, which is that I have, I have quite a few friends in Seattle who are old friends in uh, friends more than 20 years who are active in the political chatter they they'll never run for office themselves but they are they're chatterers they're on the internet they're pu- they're public figures they're well known uh as um as members of a kind of like yeah right the uh intelligentsia the the, the, the nattering nabobs <laughs> and Although these friends of mine are, uh, you know, liberals in every way, they're on the wrong side of a couple of issues. They were both on the wrong side of $15 an hour minimum wage because they are business, they're small business owners and they didn't think about it. They, they thought about it from their, from the terms of their own bottom line rather than from the long term, you know, not just the long term benefit of everybody, but also like, they did not sense which way the political winds were blowing. And they came out vocally against $15 an hour at a time. And, and, and I think they both thought that they were trying to be reasonable 
small business people, but they made public pronouncements and then defended their public pronouncements long after it was clear that the, the public wanted $15 an hour and that $15 an hour was going to be good and that they should have, they should mea culpa or they should shut up or they should just, you know, they should think about it and change their minds. Well, so young political operatives of which there are an astonishingly large number, <laughs> right? Like there are so many people in the, their mid twenties in the political game. Um, and quite a few of them have come up to me and said with a, with a, like a sneer, like a sneer and a, and a, and a, and a smirk, an ugly smirk have said, we're very concerned about your relationship with these two guys. And my first response was like, what do you mean? I've known those guys for 25 years. They're like my pals. Well, yeah, but they're on the wrong side of history. They're on the wrong side of politics. Mm -hmm. And I go, oh, yeah, right. I mean, I totally disagree with them. And I disagreed with them at the time. And any right-thinking person disagrees with them. But now but, they're, they're like damaged goods now? Well, they're, but they're still my friends. Right, right yeah. Right? And, and the, the ugly smirk was a way of communicating that within the political class, it matters less what you say than who your friends are. Because among those people, it is, it's considered a more reliable indicator of what you're going to do, uh, who, your, who your friends and associates are, than uh, what you we're say. Back, well, again, you're back to that, that issue. Right. That, that, like, and, at least we know what to expect from this guy. That's right. And so, the, and so what I derive from that is that the premise is, the premise of, of the political class is that you are lying when you say things and that what is true is who you break bread with. And that was, a, that was a shock to me, right? Because I've, right, I break bread with everybody. Hmm. Oh. And but, but like the who you break bread with, that becomes kind of a dog whistle where like if you want to really know what this person is up to, look who's, look who's on there, look who, look who they're that's hanging right. out with. Who's, that, look, that, that's telegraphing a lot more to people than what you say. That you're, there's, it's a kind of cynicism to say like, well, we know everybody says what needs to be said that day, but let's look over time at who they, who they spend their time with. Yeah, let's look at who their donors are. Let's look at who, their, who, who speaks on their behalf on Facebook you know, that's how you judge where a person stands. Hmm. And it's, and I, I guess for most people who are running for office, they've been thinking about this their whole adult lives, right? The, that they have always made sure that their friends are the right kind of friends or they've all, they only associate with people within a narrow band of of. Uh, on the political spectrum and in the in the the work that we do, but somebody like me who spent his whole career and his whole life like sitting down at a table with everybody, and a lot of them, I a lot of them are people that I love that I think are reprehensible. <laughs> uh, the idea that you know that um, 
that my friendship with them would somehow uh, compromise my my ability to to stand up to them and to everybody and say no here's the right course clearly like this is the like my friends are over here yelling but my friends are dinglings here's the here's the politically like correct um, decision uh, and that is on that is that is foreign or or i guess you know like Def- definitely like non-traditional and 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 very suspicious mm-hmm. to these to these people who think that 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 think that the language is 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 a certain way and what has what has been astonishing or startling to me is that the idea that the candidate is lying is presupposed by Yuck. these by these uh, political operatives who who are su- in some ways self-appointed and in some ways see themselves as the gatekeepers of the of the of the operation the system but also the the only way that one could assume or infer that everybody else is a liar is to first understand and believe and accept that one is a liar. That is right. That is so exactly it's the right. same. It's my same beef with hip hypocrisy that the people who are most obsessed with hypocrisy tend to either be active hypocrites or people who just sit around waiting to be shown as a hypocrite. Yeah. And the, so the people that, who are, it takes a certain nose, like it takes one to know one kind of thing. Like you're always sniffing around to, to be able to expose somebody who has the same flaws and vulnerabilities that you know you have. And these are the people leaning in, whispering advice to me, conspiratorial, like, um, these are the people who see themselves as the, in a lot of ways, like, they present themselves as the beacons of integrity. They know the, they know the, the, the right decision, and, and they are judging whether the candidates live up to this expectation. But then they reveal that they are liars because they presume everyone else is a liar, and then you realize, like, <laughs> oh wow, it is. Um, it's very hard to to enter into this world and not agree to uh, to be a liar and not agree to not agree to presume that the other guy is lying. Not agree to presume that. The, that who your friends are says more about how you're going to vote than what you say. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and ultimately, like, not agree that having an answer to everything is better than being willing to, uh, to consider all the arguments. And, it's, uh, and, and so there's a month left before the primary. And every day I have to wake up and reaffirm these things. And reaffirming them is reaffirming them is what allows me to get out of bed and go through the process. And it's so it's so divorced from winning, from trying to win, from doing whatever it takes to win, that I feel like I'm running a like I'm 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 running a race, but somehow I'm on the like I, I, the other candidates are running on the track and I'm up in the stands running around, or like they're they're on the road and you're in the dirt. 
Sort of. Yeah, right. Or I'm like running I'm running through the trees or I'm swinging through the trees or I'm I'm flying overhead in a dirigible that I made myself. Yeah, it's like if your Mario Kart goes on the rough part of the track, it's not going to go as fast. So so I don't know. You know, and I and I keep saying to the people closest to me like in a month I will either have made it through the primary at which point I will have won an election. A kind of an election. You know, I will have won my first public vote. And that will confirm that people, that the public doesn't play by the same rules as the political class. And that I was able to reach the public and that ultimately the rules of the political class apply only if you allow, if you allow them to. Or I will lose in the primary, at which point it proves that the political class Knows how, to, knows how the game is played and that is how the game is played and the public does not. Um, the public makes choices based, based on the political class and then that will be very instructive and very um, profound. Kind of back to the old thing though where you uh, don't allow yourself to, uh, to celebrate victories. For more than a couple minutes, yeah. it's like you've already kind of denied yourself the joy of winning this if it happens. Well, <laughs> I did, cool, cool aid man. <laughs> I did say if I won that I was going to buy myself a pair of shoes. Hmm. If I make it through the primary, I'm going to get a pair of shoes. Uh, my mom used to do that with me cleaning my room and getting a Batman costume. Is it working? Are you uh, are, are you you feeling like you're uh, motivated? You cut something out of a catalog and put it up. How many how many Batman costumes did you end up with? Never got it. You... Couldn't keep my room clean. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, I see. So it was a sliding scale. It was a, like a... Um... I can still see it. I can still see it in my head. We, we had a piece of a poster board. We cut it out. And I think there was some checking off of boxes. It's, oh. This is the perfect kind of textbook way to encourage a hopelessly m- messy and careless child to, to get good at it. You, we cut it out of the Sears catalog. It was exactly the, bat, the branded Batman costume that I wanted. Uh-huh. And I really, I really, really wanted it, but apparently not enough that I would clean my room. And how, how many times did you have to clean your room? Do you think if you if you look back, how 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 long would you have needed to keep your room clean? To, well, in my head, it was, it was it was a month, but it was probably more like a week straight or something. It's just that I I never hit those goals ever. Yeah. 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 Did I ever tell you the story about the time that uh, my mom told me to clean my room and I, I put all my toys in the closet and shut the door? Mm, I can guess how that turned out. <laughs> have, I, have I told you the story? You might have. Tell it again. Yeah. And then she came in and she looked around. And she was like, oh, good job. And then she opened the closet and saw all the toys in there and she jumped in the closet and jumped up and down. Oh, and right. I do remember this. Oh, my toys God. Tiny little pieces. She's, she's a, not a, a large woman. That must have taken a lot of jumping. Well, you know, kids' toys, right? I mean, back yeah, in the day. that's true. Yeah. Oh my gosh, that's the worst. Oh, mm-hmm. motivation's hard, John. It's ramifications. It's ramifications. Motiv- is motivation is difficult. It's difficult for me to figure out. It's diff- difficult for me to um, provide. Uh-huh. Everybody gets motivated by such different things. What are you motivated by? Uh, fear. Yeah. Uh, no, honestly, like as far as like as far as the motivation. No, I think fear is. I think that's. Oh yeah, that's... no, no. But it's also uh, clarity. It takes a certain amount of clarity. It depends. Like when I think of the stuff that I, I like that I'm doing or or do well, it's just like um, there is something nice. Like today, you know, we have a podcast. We we will re- we record this. I will edit this. I will put it together. That's a good feeling for me. I like that. I feel very motivated to do that particular kind of work because uh, I, I do actually really enjoy it. Um, 
as far as motivation, it's, it's hard because motivation is such a slippery word because it encompasses so many different kinds of things that, that aren't really motivating, right? It's, it's more like, what are you running away from rather than like, what are you running toward? Mm-hmm. So I don't know. It's funny though, because I, I do feel like, you know, one way that I am uh, a simple uh, and, and fault tolerant person is that I do my best when I'm feeling good about what I'm doing. And when I feel like, you know, I'm succeeding and things like that, you know, if I'm, I, I, there are other people who love being down in the count. They love, you know, that feeling of like, Oh, I'm, I can power through this. And you know, I'm good at that sometimes. I don't know. It's hard to know. I, th- this is uh this is, this is a good question. What motivates you? <laughs> You're not supposed to exhale when you ask that. <laughs> You know, what motivates me, um, I mean, that's, the, that's what's so wonderful about having done this podcast now for uh, 150 plus episodes is that it is, it's one of those rare things that is its own reward. Mm-hmm. And what has always motivated me is the, is the hope that I would discover a life which was its own reward and the feeling that the expectation that 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 life should be its own reward um and that's why why i've had such a complicated relationship with work my whole life because the um because i watched the adults in my life really practice uh, really practice the the um the belief that work was this thing that you did in order to provide uh opp- provide opportunities for pleasure or relaxation later you know that mm-hmm. that yeah that, kind of kind of a protestant work ethic idea yeah right that there there was no sense that that work was its own reward that life was its own reward even though I'm sure that it was, I'm, I'm sure that the adults in, in my life when I was a kid were enjoying the challenges of work um, and the teachers in my school were enjoying, you know, were, 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 um, were teaching us that we could go to work and enjoy it. But I don't remember anyone in school saying, you know, you're going to find a job that you're going to love. Nobody, nobody would ever put that uh, anywhere near the top of the list. I no. think it, it was much more the way that people treated being married in, in another decade or century, which is like, well, you need to be able to get along with this person. And if things work out well, um, you, you might be kind of in love for a long time. But, it was, <laughs> but I mean, anybody sensible would say, well, you know, don't just marry the first person you have a crush on. This is, this is work, right, in that sense. But – sorry, go ahead. Well, and, and I feel I, – I mean – in a way, we were the first generation that didn't marry the first person they had a crush on, right? That was a that was a new yeah that, right. that was a new thought technology for us. Even the even the baby boomers, they rebelled against it, but the way they were taught. My, my mom found it doubly confounding, and now I, I see why. My mom, being somebody who graduated from high school in nineteen um, fifty-two, I believe mm-hmm. fifty-two, fifty-six, maybe yeah, probably fifty-six. But anyway, but she found. Two things that now I, I realize why she found this confounding. On the one hand, she thought it was so strange that that I and all of my friends, everybody I knew, nobody I knew dated, 
there, to me, there was no such thing as dating when I was in high school. That seemed weird and slutty to me that I would be somebody who would go out and like, even if it was just going to the skating rink, I did not know anybody who went on dates in the you conventional guys just sense. All went out together as a gang. Well, that that could be it, but but the funny this is this is the weird irony is that for me it was more like getting a girlfriend or somebody was getting a boyfriend or whatever. It was it was this like this constant yearning for stable monogamy when I was in high school, junior high, <laughs> no dice there, but let's just say high school. On the one hand, like so much like, you know, serial monogamy where you, nobody would date, you would have a boyfriend or girlfriend, then you'd break up. And then in time you'd have another boyfriend or girlfriend. And the, the, the normal state was you're either seeking that person for monogamy or you're in the monogamous thing. Not everybody, but I would say the vast majority of people I knew, like that's what they wanted. That's what they sometimes got. But at the same time, I had zero interest in getting married. And I thought that was really weird. I thought it was very strange. So my mom thought it was strange that I wasn't like trying to, you know, meet more people, do different things, you know, be exposed to people from different places, maybe not from school. No interest to me. Like I wanted that girl in my class to like me and then be my girlfriend. Whereas then, of course, like her generation, it was all about getting married. And not that my mom was some kind of automaton or something, but I think that was really expected of people was that you're going to get married, you're going to have kids. And just look at the questions that anybody under 30 gets asked. Look at the cascade of questions. And I really felt this in Florida big time. I mean, the first, you know, do you have a girlfriend? Uh, get a girlfriend. Oh, okay. Are you going to get engaged? Uh, okay. Are you going to get married? Uh, you're going to have a kid? Uh, you're going to have three more kids? Like nobody's ever satisfied with the progress on becoming the person they'd like you to be. You're never far enough along. So anyway, I'm just saying like, from my, I, I see my mom's point of view now and I see the, the, the paradox of that, that craving all this monogamy at a time when I'm supposed to be exposed to all these different people. And, I, and that continued then after high school, but I never was into the idea of dating. It seemed like a lot of overhead. Oh my God. But and did, so what's your story? Uh, but I mean like you're, but like, like for example, with your parents, like where did your, if I could ask, where did your parents meet? Oh, you know, my mom, my mom was it in college. No, 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 no. You know, my dad was 14 oh, course, years older than my yeah, mom. Right. Yeah. Um, no, my dad was already divorced from his first wife, and he had three kids, and was living in Seattle, and was kind of a player here, in the in the legal world, in the political world, sort of big man on campus, right? And and um, my mom was had graduated from Ohio State, and was living in Columbus, and uh, you know, and living a pretty high style. Mad Men era life. She worked at a television station. She knew a lot of um, people in the arts world, and you know. And her boyfriend was Jewish, and so she was part of a sort of Jewish uh, subculture in Ohio, which is a huge, you know, a huge subculture there. Of uh, that's that's sort of the way she's always described it. It's you know, funner and more, a little racier, a little more artistic than your normal Columbus crowd. <laughs> and they all drove foreign sports cars, which in the 50s were very exotic, you know, Morgans and Austin Healy's. And um, that was kind of her scene. And then she decided that she wanted to see the world and she loaded everything in her 53 Chevy. And I'm not sure it's a 53 Chevy. I have a picture of it on my mantle. I'm pretty sure. Something like that. And she uh, headed west to, and her first stop was Seattle because she was going to visit a friend. And then she was going to head down to San Francisco and then 
all points beyond, right? Then she was going to get on a ship and go to Japan and, you know, and around the world. <laughs> Sounds like up. Yeah. You know, like she, she, she was the first, she was the kind of the only person from her little group to get out of her small town. And then she was leaving Columbus in the same way. Like, I'm going to go see the world. I'm not going to be tied down to Ohio. And she showed up in Seattle and her friend, she met up with her friend and her friend was dating a guy. And that guy brought along his friend, my dad, uh, as a blind date for, uh, for this girl that was coming from Ohio. And they started to date. And my dad, I, I guess, at a certain point, she became his legal secretary. She was working for the Alaska Steamship Company for a while. But they, you know, they had a, a like a courtship, late 50s style. My dad had a Jaguar. So it fit in with her foreign car, um, like, culture. And... He was a lawyer and a, and, a, and a politician. And, you know, she described Seattle at the time in the, in the late 50s as a pretty small town. And my dad knew everybody. And he was one of these guys that, you know, you'd get on a boat. You'd get on a, a steamship and dad would just sort of waltz into the bridge, introduce himself to the captain. And pretty soon, you know, my mom would be steering the boat. <laughs> Because, you know, dad just had that sort but like of... Ray Li- but you know, like Ray Liotta, you know, walking into the club. Yeah, exactly. Just sort of, he, he just sort of, um, you know, he waltzed around. But also he, my dad, you know, they would, on weekends, they would go drive around the Northwest. And so they they saw all the, you know, Grand Coulee Dam and all these things um, as part of their courtship. And he was drinking at the time. I mean, it was very. Uh, one, I, I've, I've told you, I think, that my mom tried to watch Mad Men and she couldn't watch it after a couple of episodes because uh, all, she could, all she could see was all the details that they'd gotten wrong. But, <laughs> you know, that, that first two seasons of Mad Men was really the era, exactly the era when my mom and dad met and. You know, he, and he was a successful lawyer and politician. And so, but he was already divorced and she was a very independent minded woman. She was not going to do, um, she wasn't going to do what was expected of her. And yet, even so, the pressure, the social pressure of the 60s mm-hmm. was still intact and it still put them together in a marriage where, even though my mom was effectively like a like a um, a mage level accountant, my father was in charge of the checkbook, and my father was somebody that you know if you if you if you put him in a room and you said here's a cupcake, but if you can wait for an hour, you get two cupcakes. <laughs> um, you would open the door in thirty seconds, and my dad would be covered in cupcake frosting, and and have stripped off all his clothes. <laughs> So there was no, you know, so those, the, the, the social expectations, the gender roles, even though both of my folks were so independent minded, they couldn't escape the, the gravity of, of those roles in that time. And, you know, and as soon as the seventies arrived, 
and there were social movements that allowed my mom to achieve escape velocity. Like she took that route as fast as she could. And my dad was just enough older that he never really fully was able to, to adapt. I get the feeling that, um, this seems pretty broad, but I get the feeling that, um, you know, we can look at the photos and we can look at the, watch the movies, but it's, I think it's probably pretty hard to capture how we can, you know, take a drink, how much hegemony there was in the fifties, just how much, how much people were not just expected to like have a certain haircut or drink a certain drink or whatever. But I think the part that gets left out is you get that pressure from everybody around you, but there's also constantly this clock ticking, like, especially for a woman. And I, I think it's easy to overlook when you say to people, oh, gosh, why did you do that? And the thing that's, I think, sometimes difficult to articulate is this sense that you're not where you should be yet, and it's starting to show. And mm. the more that it starts to show, the harder it is to get where you're supposed to be. I know that's, I'm pretty sure that's true in venture capital uh, projects. And I think it's probably true for a lot of men, and especially women, in, in the 50s. You know, I mean, in my case, my mom had... Long story short, it took a long time for her to have a kid. It took her, you know, 10 years of trying. And the idea of a woman of 30 having her first baby was like the craziest idea. Not the craziest, but like it was definitely pretty out there to be at that advanced age and having your first child. And which I think is indicative of the kind of pressure people felt. It was like even try as hard as you might, you're swimming against the stream. There's this constant pressure not only to be this way, but also the idea that like, hey, these opportunities are not going to be there forever. You better Mm -hmm. better get yourself a new brassiere, put on some lipstick and get out there. (laughs) I mean, I think about that every day. I mean, uh, I need to put on some lipstick Mm -hmm. and get out there because somebody said to me the other day, and and, and it it was so arresting. It was another one of these young political people, and he was talking about you know, needing more diversity in the candidates. And and uh, in that sense, I'm very lucky because I'm running in a race where it's just four white guys. And so I am the diverse candidate. But he, you know, he was like, we need more, you know, more gender diversity, more, um, you know, more uh, racial diversity. And he kind of like, gestured at me and said and more age diversity <laughs> and oh my I, god it took me a second to realize that what he was saying was that i was the age of a typical candidate and what we needed was younger candidates oh, and that man and that being 35 was preferable to being 45 because um because something because youth is the new uh, youth is also a thing that is discriminated against and i was like uh and it, it did it took me a second to realize that at 46 years old that i had i had crossed a threshold to people in their twenties, where I was just an indeterminate age, I was some. I was. Old, I, that's I was old. such a good way to put it. It's like it's like it's almost like with little kids, where you've got kids that are there. You got kids that are younger, kids that are their age, big kids, old kids, adults, and old people. 
Yeah. It's like there's no difference between, say, 28 and 48. Right. And Not and really. To a, to a little kid, there's not. To a 28-year-old, uh, a 28-year-old still imagines that they are an 18-year-old, but that 35 and older is, is just old. Mm-hmm. And, and, yeah. you know, and, and you've, you've, you, you always are pushing back that curtain a little bit. But when you get to be 46 and you realize like, oh, when I read in the newspaper about somebody that's 50 years old, they're basically talking about the people that were seniors in high school when I was a freshman. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I am closer, <laughs> I'm closer to 60 than I am to 25. And yeah, I, I, uh, that that is an ac- in some ways an accurate assessment, and that and yet we we uh, and again, it's the it's the funny business of the the of the generations because my dad's generation, you became an adult when you were eighteen, and then you very very definitely joined a pool of adulthood where there wasn't such a thing as young adults. It was, you know, you could be just starting out, but if you look at pictures of, of, of people in their thirties in the 1930s, they are trying desperately to look old. Right. Right. And it was really the baby boomers that were the first generation that made any distinction between being 30 and being 50. Right, it's like the, the, they say they say that uh, the, the whole concept of being a teenager was invented in something like colonial times, but I think it's it's really feels like as an armchair uh, observer, it really feels like the the fifties, late forties, early fifties are when that really caught on, uh, partly because it was a market. Right, but here for, we, for an affluent society, now there was a new source of spending inside the family, so that you were catered to, and there were all kinds of things that were. Um, you know, and also at a time when you could then count on your kids being a little safer by participating in these certain kinds of activities, you didn't want them to go straight into the army. You'd been in the army and you knew what that was like, that kind of stuff, right? But like we, so in a hunter-gatherer society, I am at the end of my usable life, my useful lifespan, right? At 46 years old, I am no longer able to, I've spent a lot of time, oh, this is crazy, this is a crazy thing to get into, uh, Right now, but I've spent a lot of time in the last few days crouching uh, in the dirt, looking out over a mountain valley and imagining myself, not in prehistoric times, but imagining myself now, but as a subsistence hunter. And I have my, I have my ladies with me on the trail and I am, you know, and I'm needing to keep this tribe going mm-hmm. you know defended against wild animals other humans pr- find food and you know working together as a tribe but with the knowledge that one of us is four years old and realizing that at 46 years old i am less useful to this tribe than i would have been at 26 years old and if this tribe were, were a little bit bigger if there were 10 of us or 15 of us um that would be much better, but I would still be, I wouldn't be, I'm not so old that I would be slowing us down, <laughs> but you know, my, I would not be with a spear out at the leading edge, either against a bear 
or another tribe. You know, I would, I would have, I'd ha- I have a lot more strategy. I have a lot more plan, but I'm a lot less, you know, my knees are bad, right? Right. And so that awareness of like the, the, the tipping point at in the, your mid forties where your eyes go bad, your, your joints go bad and you're like, Oh shit. If I, if we were on the Savannah, you know, I'm kind of, I'm a drag. Now. I, I would basically be used to bait traps. <laughs> um, that, so that knowledge, but also in the context of us kind of being the first or second generation, really the first generation that was raised all along with the idea that there wasn't just a static adulthood, but that you weren't supposed to trust anybody under 30. And then 40 was the new 30. And then, you know, 45 is the new 35. We're the first people that have ever talked like that. And it's, and it's crazy. And it reflects how desperately we don't know how to, that we, we took away graceful adulthood and replaced it with, this consumerist, striving, youth-obsessed, desperate feeling all the time. And now kind of we're the, we're the test case again, this dumb Generation X that nobody likes that it turned out was a lot smaller than we thought and less influential than we thought. And we're out here kind of baking in the hot sun trying to figure out, like, how do you be 45? Like the yuppies did it in the grossest way possible. They were terrible in their 40s. And we're the next, you know, the next ones to come along. When you think about my dad's generation, by the time they were in their 40s, they were, I mean, they had done so much, they'd wrought so much devastation, but they weren't thinking about their age uh, in the same way. And, and they were shocked when their children said, don't trust anyone over 30. You know, they were horrified. And now, you know, here I am way, way, way over 30. Mm-hmm. When Hang, they, h- hanging out with the wrong people. Hanging out with the wrong people. When they build the AI of you and me from mm-hmm. this podcast, they are going to be such boring, crotchety guys. Saggy pants. I disagree. I think the AI that they come up with if they are is not just see, I, I think if I may say, I think you might have a failure of imagination here. We're not talking about robots that think and talk like us. Real AI would be able to take the stuff that we're not articulating well and make it a lot smarter, and they would be able to draw connections. Like we're pretty good at certain parts of this, but we really need a super smart robot that would be able to go and like connect all the dots. Think, think, think what you could do with something like that. I love that you pronounce it robot. I've, it's a new thing I'm doing. I think it's so good. <laughs> And it really is. It's it isn't a robot that we're building. It's a robot. <laughs> and that that's what I I don't I do not want a robot. I do want a robot. Oh man, like like a cling clang, like actually like with like a body made of tin and stuff. <laughs> I'd be so much more into that with a little funnel for a hat. I don't want I don't want like a like a real doll that walks. Not interested. Like I'm not interested in the real doll thing at all. Like uh, the dead rubber girl, but like to have an actual like not even 50s, like 40s, maybe 30s idea of a robot. That's the robot for me. That <sighs> when he actually says clink clank when he walks around. Clink clank. <laughs> you Come know, on, I, clink clank. <laughs> I feel like my desire to not be around other people that much really extends to robots. 
Like if yeah, but I, you could tell them that, and it wouldn't hurt their feelings. Well, but that's the thing. It, because of the because of the anthropomorphizing that I do, hmm. it isn't the robot's feelings that I'd be worried about. It's my own transference of feeling into the robot. It's the Yakov Smirnoff problem. That's exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> so, 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 just having it in the house, even mm-hmm. if it was turned off, I would feel social pressure. To turn it on and interact with it. <laughs> if you have would... bad feelings, if you have ill feelings or guilty feelings about your clothing, imagine imagine a computer that walks. Yeah, that's going to be rough. Imagine how bad I would feel. I mean, even like that's why I have never turned on Siri. Oh, really? Because I do not want to interact. I do not want to have an interaction with a thing where I could disappoint it. <laughs> <laughs> it's ramifications. 